search is part of almost every application. Users search for movies to watch. Engineers search through terabytes of log messages to find exceptions. Drivers search through maps to find a destination. Search remains an unsolved problem with lots of room for optimization. Many search applications have been built on Elasticsearch, an open-source distributed search engine. Elasticsearch is the code that powers some search-as-a-service products offered by major cloud providers. After eight years of open-source development, Elasticsearch is excellent at core search functionalities, such as indexing data, sharding, and serving queries. With improved access to machine learning tools, search applications can advance in new and interesting ways. For example, an incoming search query can be sent to an API for natural language processing before being served by the search engine. A natural language processing API can derive additional meaning from the query, adding metadata to a search query. Machine learning can also be applied to better understand how people are searching across your search index and to optimize the search index to incorporate those user preferences. Liam Cavanaugh is the principal program manager on Azure Search. He joins the show to talk about the architecture of a search index, how search queries are served by an index, and how machine learning APIs can be used to improve queries. This was an interesting show at the intersection of search and machine learning, and I hope you enjoy it. Liam Cavanaugh, you are a Principal Program Manager on Azure Search. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Oh, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about search as a service, but before I want to talk just a little bit about search more broadly, more historically, because then it'll be easier to describe the architecture of a web service built around search. Let's start with the idea of a search index, because this is kind of like the database that backs a search engine. How do you define a search index? Yeah, the way that I think of a search index is actually very similar to what you might find with, say, a, a table in a, a SQL database, where, just like you say, it's a place where you, you host your data. It's a thing that you do your queries against. And unlike SQL, where you would do a SQL query, typically what people are doing against an index is they're doing what's called a full text search, which says, here are the words that I'm interested in. Find me the rows or what we would call documents that are contained within that index. And then we bring them back. So we're very, very powerful at enabling this type of a full text search over your content but then allowing you to really quickly and efficiently categorize it and group it and drill down into it. When a search index gets built, it will give different ways to access certain information that is in that search index. So for example, if you're searching over images, then the search index is going to be built one way. If you're searching over text documents, it's going to be built a different way. How would the implementation differ between an image search engine and a text document search engine? Yeah, so when you look at something, and specifically in the case of an image search, quite often there are multiple pieces of content that you want to leverage when you're doing that search. There is the actual image itself that you might want to display as a result. But traditionally, there's a lot of metadata that's associated with it that is very, very effective enabling you to pro provide that search over it. So for example, if, you know, maybe there are tags that describe that image. Maybe it's the key colors within that image, etc. And the nice part about Azure Search is that you have 
just like in the case of tables, you have these fields or columns where you can store all of these different attributes or this metadata that relates to that image so that you can search over it effectively. So for example, maybe that image describes the people or the actions that are happening within that image. So you can do the traditional full text search, yet bring in that image as a result as needed. And that's actually one of the advantages of going for something like a, a cloud platform like Azure is that you can leverage the best of the each of the data stores. So in Azure Search, we're really, really good at doing this type of full text search, as I just mentioned. But then you can persist or store that image into, say, blob storage and then just bring it in as needed. So one of the things that we find as you move into the cloud is that it's no longer just one store. Before, where maybe you might have done full text search maybe in one system, now you have all kinds of different options where you can pick the best of each store and bring them in as needed. So we'll talk a little bit more about the ingestion process here. So like if you have a set of photos that you want to be indexed over within a search engine, assuming those photos have not been annotated, then you're going to need to have some kind of annotation system that's built into your search index ingestion process. So if I've got a collection of photos, there's no metadata around them, like such as labeling them as containing cats or not, there needs to be some step in the search index ingestion process where text metadata around those entities needs to be created. Describe what happens in that text metadata generation process. Yeah, so one of the capabilities that we have within Azure Search is something called an indexer, which allows you to point Azure Search at different pieces of content or different stores. And what it will do is it will crawl those stores and ingest that, that content. And what we've done more recently as part of our, what we call cognitive search capabilities of Azure Search, is we've enhanced that ingestion or that crawling process to, to leverage various different cognitive services. And I'll actually explain that a little bit. In Azure, through our cognitive services, these are these APIs that allow you to use machine learning to go through content and basically enrich it. So some of the cases might be, here's some text, find me the key phrases from that content or the people mentioned or the locations or organizations. So it actually has the ability to extract a meaningful meaning from text. Now, if we look at your example, which is images, we can also leverage a lot of the vision-based cognitive services. So as we're ingesting or as we're crawling that store of images, we bring it in, but then we can use the integrated cognitive services to say, take this image and tell me what you find in there. And we might say, okay, here are the objects we found in that image. Here's a description of what we think that image is about. All kinds of other things that cognitive services can do to understand that image that then gets loaded or stored into your Azure search index to then be searchable. So this is all part of this whole ingestion pipeline that we offer as part of Azure search. If we go back to just talking about text, you know, even agnostic of images, there is still some metadata extraction that you can do if you have some machine learning APIs, for example. So if we're talking about unstructured documents, like long log messages, if you have a long log message, 
that's not something that is easy to build an index around. I mean, you can build naive indexes around, but if you have some kind of natural language processing that runs over those long log messages during the index process, you can build more rich metadata to be able to access that like if you have uh, you know if you want to do some synonym mapping or some other things and this can differ from structured data like a list of movies where you have maybe 10 fields for each of those movies and you have a little bit more structure to the data could you talk about the difference between building a search index for unstructured documents versus building a search index for structured data yeah, that's a really great question because that that is one of the challenges. It's actually a lot simpler if you're coming from something that has structure, like a database or some other store. Where it gets more challenging is this case where you're saying where you have unstructured content. You know, it could be in PDFs or HTML files or Office documents, but you want to build out an effective search on that. And it's it's simple enough to crack the text on it and allow you to full text search. But really, what you want to do is get structure out of that unstructured content. And so as we're bringing in content, we talk through some of the things that cognitive services can do to build out structure. Like for example, extracting out the key phrases, the people or organizations. But as we get into more specific examples, let me give uh, medical as an example. Think of all of the medical content in there. What is really important is if we bring that in and we say, oh, you know what is really important if you find out what are the diseases mentioned, the parts of the anatomy, the other factors. So as part of our ingestion, what you can do is you can leverage the things that we have built in, but you can also plug in your own machine learning capabilities. Maybe you create them all yourself or maybe you use an open source project such as uh, CTAKES, Clinical Text Analytics and knowledge extraction, which is a machine learning model that can do this entity extraction for you and plug that in. So it's very extensible how you do it. But you're you're absolutely right that a critical aspect of this is as you're bringing in content, trying to do your best to get meaning or structure from that structured content. When I create my search index and I want to make it available to users to access remotely over some kind of network connection, do I want to store that search index in memory or on disk? How does it get accessed? Yeah, with Azure Search, we are a platform as a service, so we try very hard to take a lot of those complexities out of the picture. We are, because we're an Azure service, there is an API that developers can use to programmatically access and search and query the index. But it's also important because it's accessible that we protect it. So we have these authentication mechanisms, these API keys that are part of that so that whenever you query, you need to pass in the key so that you can authenticate and get the proper results back as needed. So that is all part of that. But to your other point of things such as memory, that's also part of the platform. We do certainly, as you can imagine, persist that index to a, a persistent store, but it's also important to query that data into memory wherever it's possible to optimize it as much as possible. So we try really hard as a platform to make it simple so that users don't have to really think about those challenges, but that doesn't mean that you can't, say, add in some sort of cache layer if you wanted to on top of that. Some of our customers do that as well. But for the most part, we try to simplify it wherever possible. 
All right. Well, we'll come back to the architecture of building a search cloud service a little bit later. I want to talk more about the basics of a search engine and how a search query gets gets processed, because I think there's probably some people listening who maybe they never took a course on information retrieval. Maybe they never really read about search engines. So even though they're a software engineer, they've worked with like a SQL database. They know what a SQL database does. They know how to you know query a SQL database. Maybe a search engine is still somewhat opaque to them. So if I enter a query into some kind of document search engine, Describe how that query gets processed and how that user gets search results back at a high level. Yeah. So the first thing to point out is that in many ways, the interaction that happens against Azure Search is not that dissimilar to how it, you would interact with, say, that SQL database. There is some sort of client code that connects the website or whatever's doing the search to the search engine. And just like in SQL, where maybe using .NET or some other APIs to access your, your SQL store, Azure Search also has APIs, whether it's REST APIs or .NET SDK. So there is a developer that would be building some sort of web application, some other client application that would leverage those APIs. Now, what happens, as you mentioned, when you have that search box is, a user enters in those, those terms that they're looking for, and that gets formed into a query. And, and unlike a SQL query, this is an Azure search query that says, okay, this is the location of my search service. I want to query this index, uh, as we just talked about, that's a place that we store the data. Here's the full text query that I want to query, and maybe some other parameters that uh, would be used, say, I only want the top 10 results, or maybe I want to sort it, or maybe I want to tune the results in a different way. So the types of things you can do as a part of the query are maybe different from SQL, but the actual interaction pattern is actually very similar. Okay. Now, if I enter in a query and I'm going to get back a set of documents is that retrieval process it using something like so like we've done shows about text retrieval in the past and we talked a lot about the tfidf search for example is is that query to document tfidf process is that still a large portion of how you can return relevant documents in response to a search query yeah that is still very much a part of uh, most search engines. There's things like tfidf there's also something called bm25 there's all kinds of different algorithms that enable a search engine to effectively take words and match it to the documents or the content in your index. But that's just one part of it, because it's one thing to be able to find what is textually relevant, but it's another thing to understand what is relevant to the user that's asking the question. And that's where this idea of scoring and tuning comes into place. I'll give you an example. Let's say that you were building a used car website and you had all kinds of different used cars that you wanted to sell. And if I looked for a Ford Mustang, I put that into the search term, it's one thing for you to show me the documents that match the words Ford Mustang, but it's another thing if you can actually show me results where there's a car for sale, a Ford Mustang for sale, that's in close proximity to me. Or maybe if you can understand things about me, maybe I have a preference for 
older models of Ford Mustangs compared to newer ones. You can actually leverage all these different factors to score or weight results differently. And that's a, a key thing of search is it's one thing to find something that's relevant using TFIDF or BM25, but it's, a very, it's another thing to be able to then leverage factors to then personalize those results. And it, you know, it could also be for business value. Sometimes companies want to say, okay, if this is a relevant document, show this one higher up in the results because maybe there's higher business value to it. So there's all kinds of factors where scoring plays an important part. And we're trying really hard as part of Azure Search to simplify that as well because it's such an important thing. Right. So when I was in college, I learned about TFIDF, and it was really one of the most mind-blowing things that I learned in in just all of my computer science education. And it was like the, just the idea that you can enter in a query, and then you can turn that query into a vector, and then you have all of your documents also modeled as vectors, and then you have a mathematical relationship that you can define between your search query and each of those documents, and you can you can model them in space and then find how the query differs from all of those documents in space, and then you can you have a ranking. And and it's it turns out to be really, really good. Of course, you know, if we think about the history of, of search engines on the internet, what we found that is that there's also a lot of latent information beyond just you know, text distancing. And for example, you know, this is all you know, PageRank. PageRank was all about how the pages were referencing each other, which in contrast to like a static text document search engine, the, you know, pages are getting updated all the time. There's new pages getting added. And then you have this, this, uh, this real-time management problem of all these documents. And then, you know, you can have additional intelligence that you could add to the search engine over time based on, you know, okay, so you have this linking relationship and then people are clicking on stuff and like, oh, maybe, you know, something had the most references, but people still don't click on it in response to this query. So maybe there's something wrong with that query relative to the document. And so we can maybe, you know, add in this other layer of scoring based on how people are actually clicking on stuff. And so you just get into layers and layers and layers of intelligence that you can layer on to a search engine. It's really a bottomless problem. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, you're exactly getting into some interesting areas because TFIDF is absolutely amazing, like you said. And there's a reason why it's been around for so long is because it's so effective at that. But what people quickly realize and, you know, what our customers found as well is that it's one thing to, to use TFIDF, but some of the other examples are, you know, what happens when you have synonymous words? People search for this one word, but it, it's not referred to it that way in the content. How do you map those things? How do you do these things such as, uh, I think you're talking about feedback loops, where it's actually, you know, learning from what users are doing and trying to optimize the results based on interaction patterns. Or maybe things just change. You know, there's news articles. Maybe what was relevant a month ago is not relevant now. So taking all those things is actually hard to bring into that. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is try to see if there's things that we can do from Microsoft to bring in these capabilities so you don't have to do quite as much work. One of the things that we did do is through Bing, we have this ability to handle more of a natural language processing where it's not NLP, it's, it's more understanding different variations of words. 
sometimes there is this concept of stems, which is to look at a word like run, runner, running. Search engines can reduce it down to its stem. But through Bing and its, you know, its work that we've done, we have not only the ability to do that, but we can get different forms of words. So, you know, mouse means the same thing as mice. So we can bring in those capabilities, which are very powerful. And some of the other areas we're investigating is, you know, just through Bing and the knowledge, I don't know if you know, but in Bing, we have this huge knowledge graph that has billions, like billions and billions of entities that know relationships that, you know, if I look at that Ford Mustang, I can understand relationships to Camaros. So we're looking to leverage this data and this knowledge of Bing and integrate it so that all those hard things that you just mentioned are not things that are so hard now. So if we can tie that in, we can simplify things hopefully a lot more to, to get those abilities you just talked about. This is one aspect of machine learning that really everybody can be excited about. I think some when people first started talking about machine learning a lot, like maybe three or four years ago, when it really started entering in the hype cycle, I got a little intimidated because I was thinking, okay, now I'm going to have to learn all these aspects of deep learning and whatnot. And that's not really the case. Like, What the case is, is that you now, as long as you you trust that that these machine learning algorithms do work, and they, you know, I've looked at them a little bit close, more closely, and it's just statistics, and it does make sense how these different things work. You eventually trust that these APIs are actually building meaningful relationships, whether it's I give you an image that I just took five minutes ago, and you can send me an API response that detects that there's a cat in it. That's an amazing API, and that's now a primitive that I can put into my whatever my application is for a very low cost. And the same is true for like building really rich relationships among entities in a knowledge graph. Like word to vec is something that's relevant here, I think, because word to vec allows you to model, you know, as long as you have a large corpus of text and everybody has a large corpus of text that they can use to train a word to vec model, you can find synonyms. You can build relationships like, you know, king to queen. Like, what is the relationship between king and queen? Well, it's, it's, uh, you know, that's kind of the same position but swapped between genders. How would you describe that relationship to a computer? Well, we now have ways of doing that, and now it's just hidden behind an API so that you can, you know, just, it's an abstract API. And what's amazing about that, the fact that it just gets hidden behind an API is now somebody who's working working on search as a service who doesn't have time to really think about how do you build a word to vec model can just say, I now have an API for detecting synonyms. And how am I going to put that into my search as a service product? Yeah, I think you're right. And, and just to kind of continue on with what you were saying of things like word I also think it, th- things like that are just so effective and it's actually not that hard to really start getting into that. Uh, that actually links back to what you were saying uh, of TFIDF. I've, I've actually personally found that, you know, word is great. There's also ability ways that you can leverage that TFIDF model, even some the BM25 model that I was talking about earlier to find interesting correlations of of words and terms, just like you have in word to bet that are very effective. I actually have a, a GitHub site I'd be happy to share with your listeners as well if they're interested that goes through some of those techniques in more detail. But I find that's that's correct. And it's not only things like word to vec I've also worked with customers that have created these really interesting models where it takes, say, loyalty card information and starts to understand some preferences of those users. And they start using that as part of the, the search 
queries as well. So there's so many really interesting machine learning areas that, that are actually not that hard to get into, but are incredibly effective. So just I completely agree with what you just said. So you could take a loyalty. I like that loyalty card example, or maybe if you want to discuss another example in in more detail. But I find that one interesting. So I can imagine like a loyalty card software development company. They're probably not super well versed in machine learning, but the machine learning APIs are accessible to them to some degree. What do they need to know about machine learning, and what do they need to know about search in order to be able to? leverage their domain-specific data to make more informed search results. Yeah, so and it's, it's like everything, especially even machine learning, is it can get very complicated very quickly. But there are a lot of things that you can start out with that are, that are actually not that hard. Like, for example, there are some very simple machine learning mechanisms, such as item similarity that you can use. And there's actually some really good open source technologies that you can just pick up and leverage from that, where if you start learning, okay, this is the user ID, this is the item that they clicked on. If you start taking that data and you pass it into one of these item similarity functions, it'll spit out these correlations that say that, oh, this user, he's similar to this other user. Or this user that looked at this product, that's actually very similar to these other products so that you can actually leverage that information as part of the presentation to the users. So those things such as item similarity, you can just start leveraging pretty quickly and they make a big impact on the overall experience when you're building out these search experiences. And those things such as loyalty card data is typically very easy to to extract and build out from. Okay, so you're describing a collaborative filtering model. So let's say I've got a bunch of users that are searching across my let's say, let's say I connect to a search as a service product and I'm I'm running this loyalty card website. So this is like people who are searching for loyalty cards on this website like they buy loyalty cards on the website. Oh, the example I was thinking is let's say that you have a grocery store and you all of your customers have a loyalty card so that whenever they purchase things they they put in their loyalty card and so what you can do is then you would have information on what that user was interested in. So then you can use that to help present users with more relevant data. So actually say, oh, I see that you have a preference for these types of brands or these items so that you can actually really personalize that experience for the user. So the example I was thinking was more in that area. Now, obviously, you have to think very carefully of what type of data you want to leverage there. But those things can really improve the experience for the user so that if I'm searching for something, show me something that is more relevant to myself. Right. Okay. So that loyalty card data would get repurposed for like, what is the search use case? Is there like, is it like the grocery store also has an online website, for example, and like the, they have the loyalty cards connected to the person when they search for groceries online? Yeah, so what typically happens in this case is that, let's take that a grocery store example, they have a, a website and someone comes in and maybe you they log in, they have this information that knows that this is the user doing the query. If that retailer, that grocery store has that personalization information, they can then do the query, but they can say, you know what, search engine, I know that this user 
has a very specific interest in these brands. So if there's a matching item that meets that criteria, give it more relevance. So you can start leveraging your own data to optimize the query that you're executing against the search engine. And what's the relationship between the collaborative filtering model and the search index? And how often does that data get rebatched or is it streaming? Can you tell me a little bit more about the relationship between those two modules? Yeah, so there's kind of a, a lot of it depends on the actual customers themselves. A lot of times what customers will do is they will build out these, they'll have, say, a nightly job that goes through and says, okay, here's the data that I have. And based on the current usage patterns, the current purchases by my users, here are the similarities that I am seeing. And they would actually store that as part of the search index so that when somebody searches for an item, we can automatically bring back the idea that, oh, people who have purchased this have also been interested in these. So you can actually use that a bit of an upsell as well. So just having that part of the index can be very, very effective. But you can also do it on demand. There's a lot of ways where you can say, you know, I just found this user that did a query. Are there any other types of users that are similar to them? And then you can find that, get that information back to help, once again, optimize the queries that go through to say, oh, people have searched for this, have also searched for that. Are you interested in these things? So it's really all about helping lead the user into areas that are interesting to them. Do you start to pay a latency penalty when you add in more intelligence and different elements to your search when it becomes less naive? Yeah, sometimes it does. In those cases where I was talking about using the batching, where you're actually processing the content in a nightly job and you're loading it in to the index, there's really not an overhead there other than the fact that you process it at all as a nightly job. If you do this as part of a dynamic on-demand query, you are right that this can impact some of the latency because first you have to do a call to get those recommendations, bring that back, change the query, and then re-execute it. So the advantage of the dynamic is it's more real-time. The disadvantage is that, like you say, there can be a, an addition of latency that comes into play. There are a lot of people that listen to this show because they're curious about how some of these cloud products are built. Can you give me, to some degree, an overview of the architecture of Azure Search and what happens when somebody spins up a new search index? Sure. A couple of things that I'll just point out at the start is Azure Search is actually leveraging an open source technology called Elasticsearch. Now, we picked that technology because it's a really effective and powerful search engine, but we actually run that within our Azure environment on Azure VMs. Now, we have our own API layer that sits on top of Elasticsearch, so it allows us to somewhat simplify the API, the queries that you do against the search engine. It also has some protection capabilities into it as well. But Elasticsearch is very much the core of the search engine. Now, what we also do within Azure is we do things such as persisting your index, uh, that data store, to Azure Blob Storage. So Azure Blob Storage is one of the places where we can store files as well. And so we use that as a persistence, but they tie in very closely. Now, when a customer comes in to actually create a search service, 
they don't see that there is an Elasticsearch service. They don't see that there are VMs that's created on their behalf. All that they do is they create the search service. They say, I want it in this region. I want it of this size, of this capacity. Go in and create it. And we come back and we give them all the API details that they can then start using and leveraging. But for the most part, we are purely using Azure technologies, whether it's Azure VMs, we're using the blob storage, we're using a number of other things that we've just packaged together so that we can make managing and running these things really effective. Then on top of it, what we're doing is we're starting to bring in, or we have been bringing in a bunch of different Microsoft capabilities that you can't get just by you know, picking an open source technology. I talked about some of those things from Bing that we're bringing in. There's a lot of things from our cognitive services, machine learning capabilities that we're integrating directly as part of that system as well. Where are the integration points that you work those machine learning APIs into Elasticsearch? So for the machine learning, the vast majority of that is what we're talking about as we were ingesting the content. So it's going through that content, learning interesting things about it, and then adding useful information to it. So that's the vast majority of it. Now, there's other areas that are starting to become more popular. So if you think of traditional search, there's some sort of search box in there, and somebody types in some words and you get results. But what's happening now is that people are moving beyond that. They use Google and they use Bing every day, and they're starting to understand that they don't necessarily need to just enter in words. They can ask natural questions like find me, you know, a home that's in a good neighborhood in this price range. So they can ask more natural language questions. So the interaction pattern is different. And that is very critical to artificial intelligence because when you get those queries, you need to understand the intent. What are they actually asking? And then mapping that into a search query so that you can get the results. People are moving towards using voice, not entering terms or actually talking and expecting search results come back. So artificial intelligence is becoming very important, not only in the processing of the content, but also in how you actually interact with the search engine itself. Let's go back to talking about these high-level use cases. Do you have any more unexpected customer use cases that you've seen? Yeah, we've definitely had a number of those that have come up. You know, one of the interesting things when we first started the the project was that, you know, there was a lot of assumptions that pretty much everybody's going to have some sort of search box. And we talked about how that's changing in, in one ways, but we're also finding that there's a lot of customers that use search engines and there's no search box at all. One of the things that is surprisingly powerful of search engines is its ability to group content quickly to allow you then filter it in. And we call those facets. That's the idea that whenever you go to a retail site and you search for shoes, maybe it shows you a facet of colors, maybe a facet of manufacturers, facet of size range and price, whatever. And then you can drill in and filter on the results. One of the things that I found really interesting is that a large number of customers actually use our search engine without a search box at all. They just show the user these categories that allow them to quickly drill down into them, which was somewhat surprising to me at the start. 
And secondly, I'm actually finding, interestingly, that people are starting to use search engines as an alternative to machine learning. So what they're using is, you know, let's say that you bring in all, you have a business to business where you get this set of data that might contain business names. And maybe that business name that from your customer refers to as international business machines, but you refer to it as IBM. Using search engines to actually find what is the best matches to content. So they're actually using things like that TFIDF and other factors to help find relevant information. That is very, very surprising to me. So the viability of using search engines beyond just a traditional search box is, I find fascinating. We had this show recently where we were talking with Airbnb about their search engine. So Airbnb's search engine is is very domain-specific because if you search, I mean, talk about looking at search from a different angle, they look at search as more of a marketplace matching algorithm because they want the customer to convert. So their search engine is like, does this search query from this person uh, have a high likelihood of of matching up with a property that will convert them quickly? And you know, I don't know why that would specifically not be something that they could they could offload to a cloud service or Elasticsearch. I think they built it actually from Solar. I think their search engine is built built from Solar, which I know is like the roots of Elasticsearch. So to some degree, it's it's similar and it's built off an open source project. But maybe you know the finesse between them a little bit better. But in any case, are there any domain specific use cases where you would like to accommodate them? you know, since you're building a search as a service, but it would come at the cost of keeping the service flexible. Like if you wanted to do some kind of home rental search engine, if you wanted to make that easy to build on Azure search, that would come at the cost of making the product more complicated. So I'm I'm just wondering about the design decisions of somebody who's architecting a cloud search product. And if you have to make trade-offs into in certain type of customer use cases. Yeah, it's true. When you build a platform as a service, you have to make a certain number of decisions on how to, what you expose, what you don't expose. Because if you expose everything, then it's no longer a platform and you can't really manage it easily for the customer on their behalf. So, and it's true with Azure Search. We had to make some decisions as well. Uh, We, you know, if you take that Airbnb case, I don't know, but I suspect they have a really large number of people that are focused purely on search and building out machine learning models for that. Now, not every company can allocate a lot of people to building an effective search. So we try to see if there's ways that we can offer a similar set of capabilities to what you would see in Airbnb, but maybe in more of a platforming way. So for example, when we first built the, the search engine, Azure Search, we, we talked to a lot of people and we understood the types of scoring and the tuning that they do, such as what you just said with Airbnb. And we started to learn that the vast majority of customers have a very specific type of tuning that they need to do. So rather than offering every single piece of API or customization or machine learning hosting that is there, we could say, you know what? Let's just provide these capabilities out of the box so that you can just say, yes, I want to use that. Now, 
is it ever going to be as effective as you know sending an army of people to build out your own machine learning models? Probably not, but it's probably pretty close. So if we can offer a good set of capabilities to do a similar type set of things to what you see in the Airbnb, we find that a good portion of the customers really appreciate that, and there's value to that. But I think your point is very valid that when you look at platforms, you're never going to have the exact same set of capabilities that you would find in core Elasticsearch or Solar. But then that comes at a, a cost of management and cost as well. Tell me about some of the other challenges of building a managed service. Yeah. So, well, you know, these data stores are never perfect and there's things that happen with them, whether it's corruption, other things that occur. And one of the one of the interesting things is you find is that when people first start with these technologies, is it's very easy often to get started. But as you start adding content, as you start really pushing the limits of it, you start needing to think about replication and availability and all these other factors, it often gets really, really tough. Now we have I can't say exactly how many, but we have a large number of these Elasticsearch instances around the world. And we've learned a lot through all of the telemetry we've built and the automatic recovery of those systems to make sure that we can keep these up and running. And it's not always easy. You know, we had a lot of pains when we first started to try to learn all the different ways that these stores can potentially fail. And it's really important, as you can imagine, that we don't lose customers' data and we keep it available as much as possible. So there was a lot of learning that we took in making sure that we can make these, these services available. And I think that's it's hard for people just getting into this to realize how challenging sometimes that can be. And it's hard to express that, that value in a platform until users have really gone through and actually built something large. So we start to wrap up. I'd love to know what kinds of research you're seeing that is interesting to you, either in the area of search or machine learning that you think might be applicable to a managed service like this. Yeah, so there's a couple of interesting areas that we've been focusing on. One is in the area of what we call custom named entity recognition. So named entity recognition is the ability to say, okay, in this content, here are the interesting like I said, organizations, people, other key phrases that were found. So that's entity recognition. The ability to do custom named entity recognition is, I think, one of the most interesting things from a search perspective, because every single customer is going to have their own set of content, their own entity types that they're interested in. I talked about medical, maybe it's diseases and disorders. If you look at legal, maybe it's people like judges or cases or other topics or entities that you're interested in. So being able to leverage machine learning capabilities to go through a customer's unique content and understand very specific entity types, I think is really powerful because then it allows people to really plug in whatever they need to do. And I think that's one factor that's very interesting. The other things that we've been making a big effort in is in the area of OCR as well as form understanding. OCR, which is the idea of looking at an image and extracting text from it, is something that's been around for a long time, but it's never been really effective. We've actually started using machine learning, specifically neural nets, to build out our models 
or doing OCR, and it's having a huge impact. We're getting very, very accurate results that come back from the extraction of content from images. So now it's not just files with text that we can index and make searchable. It's actually images, whether it's a scan or a fax or a handwritten note that starts plugging in. So machine learning is really making all of this data much more accessible for us to both ingest and enrich. Yeah, that's certainly exciting. I'm really looking forward to seeing this make its way into more and more consumer applications. It's taking a while, but I think it it's, I don't know, we've got a bright future ahead of us. Yeah, I agree. Liam, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's been great talking with you. Wow.